1. Influences of geographic environment on the basis of our ADZL system of ADHROPL geography by LNCHURCHILLSEMPLE preface the present book, as originally planned over seven years ago, was to be a simplified paraphrase or restatement of the principles embodied in Friedrich Ratzel's Anthropogeography. The German work is difficult reading even for Germans. To most English and American students of geographic environment it is a closed book. A treasure house bolted and barred. Ratzel himself realized that any English form could not be a literal translation, but must be adapted to the Anglo-Celtic and especially to the Anglo-American mind. The writer undertook, with Ratzel's approval, to make such an adapted restatement of the principles, with a view to making them pass current where they are now unknown. But the initial stages of the work revealed the necessity of a radical modification of the original plan. Ratzel performed the great service of placing anthropogeography on a secure scientific basis. He had his foreigners in Montesquieu, Alexander von Humboldt, Buckle, Ritter, Cole, Kestel and others, but he first investigated the subject from the modern scientific point of view, constructed his system according to the principles of evolution, and based his conclusions on worldwide inductions, for which his predecessors did not command the data. To this task he brought thorough training as a naturalist, broad reading and travel, a profound and original intellect, and amazing fertility of thought, yet the field which he had chosen was so vast, and its material so complex, that even his big mental grasp could not wholly compass it. His conclusions, therefore, are not always exhaustive or final. Moreover, the very fecundity of his ideas often left him no time to test the validity of his principles. He enunciates one brilliant generalization after another. Sometimes he reveals the mind of a southeaster or poet, throwing out conclusions which are highly suggestive, on the face of them convincing, but which on examination prove attainable, or at best must be set down as unproven or needing qualification. But these were just the slag from the great furnace of his mind, slag not always worthless, brilliant and far-reaching as were his conclusions. He did not execute a well-ordered plan. Rather he grew with his work, and his work and its problems grew with him. He took a mountaintop view of things, kept his eyes always on the far horizon, and in the splendid sweep of his scientific conceptions sometimes overlooked the details near at hand. Herein lay his greatness and his limitation. These facts brought the writer face to face with a serious problem. Ratzel's work needed to be tested, verified. The only solution was to go over the whole field from the beginning making research for the data as from the foundation, and checking off the principles against the facts. This was especially necessary, because it was not always obvious that Ratzel had based his inductions on sufficiently broad data, and his published work had been open to the just criticism of inadequate citation of authorities. It was imperative, moreover, that any investigation of geographic environment for the English-speaking world should meet its public well supported both by facts and authorities because that public had not previously known a Ritter or a Pestel. The writer's own investigation revealed the fact that Ratzel's principles of anthropogeography did not constitute a complete, well-proportioned system. Some aspects of the subject had been developed exhaustively. These of course the most important, but others had been treated inadequately. Others were merely a hint or an inference, and yet others were represented by an hiatus. It became necessary, therefore, to work up certain important themes with a thoroughness commensurate with their significance, to reduce the scale of others, and to fill up certain gaps with original contributions to the science. Always it was necessary to clarify the original statement, 
where that was adhered to, and to throw it into the concrete form of expression demanded by the Anglo-Saxon mind. One point more, the organic theory of society and state permeates the anthropogeography, because Retzel formulated his principles at a time when Herbert Spencer exercised a wide influence upon European thought. This theory, now generally abandoned by sociologists, had to be eliminated from any restatement of Retzel's system, though it was applied in the original often in great detail, it stood there nevertheless rather as a scaffolding around the finished edifice, and the stability of the structure, after the scaffolding is removed shows how extraneous to the whole it was, the theory performed, however, a great service in impressing Retzel's mind with the life-giving connection between land and people. The writer's own method of research has been to compare typical peoples of all races and all stages of cultural development, living under similar geographic conditions. If these peoples of different ethnic stocks but similar environments manifested similar or related social, economic or historical development, it was reasonable to infer that such similarities were due to environment and not to a race. Thus, by extensive comparison, the race factor in these problems of two unknown quantities was eliminated for certain large classes of social and historical phenomena. The writer, moreover, has purposely avoided definitions, formulas, and the enunciation of hard and fast rules, and has refrained from any effort to delimit the field or define the relation of this new science of anthropogeography to the older sciences. It is unwise to put tight clothes on a growing child. The eventual form and scope of the science the definition and organization of its material must evolve gradually. After long years and many efforts of many workers in the field, the eternal flux of nature runs through anthropogeography, and warns against precipitate or rigid conclusions, but its laws are nonetheless well-founded because they do not lend themselves to mathematical finality of statement. For this reason the writer speaks of geographic factors and influences, shuns the word geographic determinant and speaks with extreme caution of geographic control. The present volume is offered to the public with a deep sense of its inadequacy, with the realization that some of its principles may have to be modified or their emphasis altered after wider research, but also with the hope that this effort may make the way easier for the scholar who shall someday write the ideal treatise on anthropogeography. In my work on this book I have only one person to thank, the great master who was my teacher and friend during his life and after his death my inspiration, L-N-C-H-U-R-C-H-I-L-L-S-E-N-P-L-E, Louisville, Kentucky, January, 1911, Chapter I The operation of geographic factors in history man is a product of the earth's surface, this means not merely that he is a child of the earth, dust of her dust, but that the earth has mothered him, fed him, set him tasks, directed his thoughts, confronted him with difficulties that have strengthened his body and sharpened his wits, given him his problems of navigation or irrigation, and at the same time whispered hints for their solution. She has entered into his bone and tissue, into his mind and soul. On the mountains she has given him leg muscles of iron to climb the slope, along the coast she has left these weak and flabby, but given him instead vigorous development of chest and arm to handle his paddle or oar. In the river valley she attaches him to the fertile soil, circumscribes his ideas and ambitions by a dull round of calm exacting duties, narrows his outlook to the cramped horizon of his farm, up on the wind-swept plateaus, in the boundless stretch of the grasslands and the waterless tracts of the desert, where he roams with his flocks from pasture to pasture and oasis to oasis, where life knows much hardship but escapes the grind of drudgery, 
where the watching of grazing herd gives him leisure for contemplation, and the wide-ranging life a big horizon, his ideas take on a certain gigantic simplicity, religion becomes monotheism, God becomes one, and rivaled like the sand of the desert and the grass of the steppe, stretching on and on without break or change, chewing over and over the cut of his simple belief as the one food of his nth mind, his faith becomes fanaticism, his big spatial ideas, born of that ceaseless regular wandering, outgrow the land that bred them and bear their legitimate fruit in wide imperial conquests. Man can no more be scientifically studied apart from the ground which he tills, or the lands over which he travels, or the seas over which he trades, than polar bear or desert cactus can be understood apart from its habitat. Man's relations to his environment are infinitely more numerous and complex than those of the most highly organized plant or animal. So complex are they that they constitute a legitimate and necessary object of special study. The investigation which they receive in anthropology, ethnology, sociology and history is piecemeal and partial, limited as to the race, cultural development, epoch, country or variety of geographic conditions taken into account. Hence all these sciences, together with history so far as history undertakes to explain the causes of events fail to reach a satisfactory solution of their problems largely because the geographic factor which enters into them all has not been thoroughly analyzed. Man has been so noisy about the way he has conquered nature, and nature has been so silent in her persistent influence over man, that the geographic factor in the equation of human development has been overlooked. In every problem of history there are two main factors, variously stated as heredity and environment, man and his geographic conditions the internal forces of race and the external forces of habitat. Now the geographic element in the long history of human development has been operating strongly and operating persistently. Herein lies its importance. It is a stable force. It never sleeps. This natural environment, this physical basis of history, is for all intents and purposes immutable in comparison with the other factor in the problem-shifting, plastic, progressive, retrogressive man. History tends to repeat itself largely owing to the steady, and changing geographic element. If the ancient Roman consul in faraway Britain often assumed an independence of action and initiative unknown in the provincial governors of Gaul, and if, centuries later, Roman Catholicism in England maintained a similar independence towards the Holy See, both facts had their cause in the remoteness of Britain from the center of political or ecclesiastical power in Rome. If the independence of the Roman consul in Britain was duplicated later by the attitude of the thirteen colonies toward England, and again within the young republic by the headstrong self-reliance, impatient of government authority, which characterized the early Trans-Allegheny Commonwealths in their aggressive Indian policy, and led them to make war and conclude treaties for the cession of land like sovereign states, and if this attitude of independence in the over-mountain men reappeared in a spirit of political defection looking toward secession from the Union and a new combination with their British neighbor on the Great Lakes or the Spanish beyond the Mississippi, these are all the identical effects of geographical remoteness made yet more remote by barriers of mountain and sea. This is the long reach which weakens the arm of authority, no matter what the race or country or epoch, as with geographical remoteness, so it is with geographical proximity. The history of the Greek peninsula and the Greek people, because of their location at the threshold of the Orient, has contained a constantly recurring Asiatic element. This comes out most often as a note of warning, like the motif of portrait in the opera of Lohengrin. It mingles ominously in every chorus of Hellenic enterprise or paean of Hellenic victory. 
and finally swells into a national dirge at the Turkish conquest of the peninsula. It comes out in the legendary history of the Argonautic expedition and the Trojan War, in the arrival of Phoenician Cadmus and Phrygian Pelops in Grecian lands, in the appearance of Tyrian ships on the coast of the Peloponnesus, where they gather the purple-yielding murex and kidnap Greek women. It appears more conspicuously in the Asiatic sources of Greek culture, more dramatically in the Persian Wars, in the retreat of Xenophon's 10,000, in Alexander's conquest of Asia, and Hellenic domination of Asiatic trade through Syria to the Mediterranean. Again in the 13th century the lure of the Levantine trade led Venice and Genoa to appropriate certain islands and promontories of Greece as commercial bases nearer to Asia. In 1396 begins the absorption of Greece into the Asiatic Empire of the Turks. The long dark eclipse of sunny Hellas, till it issues from the shadow in 1832 with the achievement of Greek independence. If the factor is not one of geographical location, but a natural barrier, such as a mountain system or a desert, its effect is just as persistent. The upheft mass of the Carpathians served to divide the westward moving tide of the Slavs into two streams, diverting one into the maritime plain of northern Germany and Poland, the other into the channel of the Danube Valley which guided them to the Adriatic and the foot of the Alps. The same range checked the westward advance of the mounted Tartar hordes, the Alps long retarded Roman expansion into Central Europe, just as they delayed and obstructed the southward advance of the northern barbarians. Only through the partial breaches in the wall known as Passes did the Alps admit small, divided bodies of the invaders, like the Chimbrian Teutons, who arrived, therefore, with weakened power and at intervals, so that the Roman forces had time to gather their strength between successive attacks, and thus prolonged the life of the declining empire. So in the Middle Ages, the Alpine barrier facilitated the resistance of Italy to the German emperors, trying to enforce their claim upon this ancient seat of the Holy Roman Empire. It was by river-worn valleys leading to Passace in the ridge that Etruscan trader, Roman legion, barbarian horde, and German army crossed the Alpine ranges. Today well-made highways and railroads converge upon these valley paths and summit portals, and going is easier, but the Alps still collect their toll. Now in added tons of coal consumed by engines and in higher freight rates, instead of the ancient imposts of physical exhaustion paid by pack animal and heavily accoutred soldier. Formerly these mountains barred the weak and timid, today they bar the poor, and forbid transit to all merchandise of large bulk and small value which cannot pay the heavy transportation charges. Similarly, the wide barrier of the Rockies, prior to the opening of the first overland railroad, excluded all but strong-limbed and strong-heart pioneers from the fertile valleys of California and Oregon, just as it excludes coal and iron even from the Colorado mines, and checks the free movement of laborers to the fields and factories of California, thereby tightening the grip of the labor unions upon Pacific Coast industries, as the surface of the earth presents obstacles, so it offers channels for the easy movement of humanity, groups whose direction determines the destination of aimless, and planned migrations, and whose termini become, therefore, regions of historical importance. Along these nature-made highways history repeats itself. The maritime plain of Palestine has been an established route of commerce and war from the time of Sennacherib to Napoleon. The Danube Valley has admitted to Central Europe a long list of barbarian invaders, covering the period from el to the Turkish besiegers of Vienna in 1683. The history of the Danube Valley has been one of warring throngs, of shifting political frontiers and in a semi races, but as the river is a great natural highway, 
every neighboring state wants to front upon it and strives to secure it as a boundary. The movements of peoples constantly recur to these old grooves, the unmarked path of the voyageur's canoe, bringing out pelts from Lake Superior to the fur market at Montreal, is followed today by whaleback steamers with their cargoes of Manitoba wheat. Today the Mohawk Depression through the Northern Appalachians diverts some of Canada's trade from the Great Lakes to the Hudson, just as in the 17th century it enabled the Dutch at New Amsterdam and later the English at Albany to tap the fur trade of Canada's frozen forests, formerly a line of stream and portage. It carries now the Erie Canal and New York Central Railroad. Similarly the narrow level belt of land extending from the mouth of the Hudson to the eastern elbow of the lower Delaware defining the outer margin of the rough hill country of northern New Jersey and the inner margin of the smooth coastal plain, has been from savage days such a natural thoroughfare. Here ran the trail of the Lenny Lenape Indians, a little later, the old Dutch road between New Amsterdam and the Delaware trading posts, yet later the King's Highway from New York to Philadelphia. In 1838 it became the route of the Delaware and Raritan Canal, and more recently of the Pennsylvania Railroad between New York and Philadelphia. The early Aryans, in their gradual dispersion over northwestern India, reached the Arabian Sea chiefly by a route running southward from the Indus-Ganges divide, between the eastern border of the Rajputana Desert and the western foot of the Aravalli Hills. The streams flowing down from this range across the thirsty plains unite to form the Lini River, which draws a dead line to the advance of the desert. Here a smooth and well-watered path brought the early Aryans of India to a fertile coast along the Gulf of Cambri. In the palmy days of the Mongol Empire during the 17th century, and doubtless much earlier, it became an established trade route between the sea and the rich cities of the Upper Ganges. Recently it determined the line of the Rajputana Railroad from the Gulf of Cambri to Delhi, Naragaza. The ancient seaboard terminus of this route, appears in Pliny's time as the most famous emporium of western India, the resort of Greek and Arab merchants. It reappears later in history with its name metamorphosed to Baroque or Brooch where in 1616 the British established a factory for trade, but is finally superseded, under Portuguese and English rule, by nearby Surat. Thus natural conditions fix the channels in which the stream of humanity most easily moves, determine within certain limits the direction of its flow, the velocity and volume of its current. Every new flood tends to fit itself approximately into the old banks, seeks first these lines of least resistance and only when it finds them blocked or preempted does it turn to more difficult paths. Geographical environment, through the persistence of its influence, acquires peculiar significance. Its effect is not restricted to a given historical event or epoch, but, except when temporarily met by some strong counteracting force, tends to make itself felt under varying guise in all succeeding history. It is the permanent element in the shifting fate of races, Islands show certain fundamental points of agreement which can be distinguished in the economic, ethnic and historical development of England, Japan, Melanesian Fiji, Polynesian New Zealand, and prehistoric Crete. The great belt of deserts and steppes extending across the old world gives us a vast territory of rare historical uniformity. From time immemorial they have borne and bred tribes of wandering herdsmen, they have sent out the invading hordes who, in successive waves of conquest, have overwhelmed the neighboring river lowlands of Eurasia and Africa. They have given birth in turn to Scythians, Indo-Aryans, Avars, Huns, Saracens, Tartars and Turks. As to the Tuareg tribes of the Sahara, the Sudanese and Bantu folk of the African grasslands, but whether these various peoples have been Negroes, Hamites, Semites, Indo-Europeans or Mongolians, 
they had always been pastoral nomads. The description given by Herodotus of the ancient Scythians is applicable in its main features to the Kyrgyz and Kalmuk who inhabit the Caspian plains today. The environment of this dry grassland operates now to produce the same mode of life and social organization as it did 2.400 years ago, stamps the cavalry tribes of Cossacks as it did the mounted Huns, energizes its sons by its dry bracing air, toughens them by its harsh conditions of life, organizes them into a mobilized army, always moving with its pastoral commissariat. Then when population presses too hard upon the meager sources of subsistence, when a summer drought burns the pastures and dries up the water holes, it sends them forth on a mission of conquest, to seek abundance in the better watered lands of their agricultural neighbors. Again and again the productive valleys of the Holonho, Indus, Ganges, Tigris and Euphrates, Nile, Volga, Dnieper and Danube have been brought into subjection by the imperious nomads of Aradasia, just as the Ho people of the Niger and Upper Nile have so often been conquered by the herdsmen of the African grasslands. Thus, regardless of race or epithexos or coffer history tends to repeat itself in these rainless tracts, and involves the better watered districts along their borders when the vast tribal movements extend into these peripheral lands. Climatic influences are persistent, often obdurate in their control. Arid regions permit agriculture and sedentary life only through irrigation. The economic prosperity of Egypt today depends as completely upon the distribution of the Nile waters as in the days of the pharaohs. The mantle of the ancient Egyptian priest has fallen upon the modern British engineer. Arctic explorers have succeeded only by imitating the life of the Eskimos, adopting their clothes, food, fuel, dwellings, and mode of travel. Intense cold has checked both native and Russian development over that major portion of Siberia lying north of the mean annual isotherm of degree C 32 degrees F, and it has had a like effect in the corresponding part of Canada. Compare maps pages 8 and 9. It allows these subarctic lands scant resources and a population of less than two to the square mile. Even with the intrusion of white colonial peoples, it perpetuates the savage economy of the native hunting tribes, and makes the fur trader their modern exploiter. Whether he be the Cossack tribute gatherer of the lower Lena River, or the factor of the Hudson Bay Company, the assimilation tends to be ethnic as well as economic, because the severity of the climate excludes the white woman. The debilitating effects of heat and humidity, aided by tropical diseases, soon reduce intruding peoples to the dead level of economic inefficiency characteristic of the native races. These, as the fittest, survive and tend to absorb the newcomers, wanting to hybrid is on as the simplest solution of the problem of tropical colonization. The more the comparative method is applied to the study of history and this includes a comparison not only of different countries but also of successive epochs in the same country the more apparent becomes the influence of the soil in which humanity is rooted, the more permanent and necessary is that influence seem to be. Geographies claim to make scientific investigation of the physical conditions of historical events is then vindicated, which was their first. Geography or history? Asks Kant, and then comes his answer, geography lies at the basis of history. The two are inseparable. History takes for its field of investigation human events in various periods of time, anthropogeography studies existence in various regions of terrestrial space, but all historical development takes place on the Earth's surface, and therefore is more or less molded by its geographic setting. Geography, to reach accurate conclusions, must compare the operation of its factors in different historical periods and at different stages of cultural development. 
it therefore regards history in no small part as a succession of geographical factors embodied in events. Back of Massachusetts' passionate abolition movement, it sees the granite soil and boulder-strewn fields of New England, back of the South's long fight for the maintenance of slavery. It sees the rich plantations of Tidewater, Virginia and the teeming fertility of the Mississippi bottomlands. This is the significance of Herder's saying that, history is geography set into motion. What is today a fact of geography becomes tomorrow a factor of history. The two sciences cannot be held apart without doing violence to both, without dismembering what is a natural, vital whole. All historical problems ought to be studied geographically and all geographic problems must be studied historically. Every map has its date. Those in the statistical atlas of the United States showing the distribution of population from 1790 to 1890 embody a mass of history as well as of geography. A map of France or the Russian Empire has a long historical perspective, and on the other hand, without that map no change of ethnic or political boundary, no modification in routes of communication, no system of frontier defenses or of colonization, no scheme of territorial aggrandizement can be understood. The study of physical environment as a factor in history was unfortunately brought into disrepute by extravagant and ill-founded generalization, before it became the object of investigation according to modern scientific methods, and even today principles advanced in the name of anthropogeography are often superficial, inaccurate, based upon a body of data too limited as to space and time, or couched in terms of unqualified statement which exposes them to criticism or refutation. Investigators in this field, moreover, are prone to get a squint in their eye that makes them see one geographic factor to the exclusion of the rest, whereas it belongs to the very nature of physical environment to combine a whole group of influences, working all at the same time under the law of the resolution of forces, in this plexus of influences, some operate in one direction and some in another, now one loses its beneficent effect like a medicine long used or a garment outgrown, another waxes in power reinforced by a new geographic factor which has been released from dormancy by the expansion of the known world, or the progress of invention and of human development. These complex geographic influences cannot be analyzed and their strength estimated except from the standpoint of evolution. That is one reason these half-baked geographic principles rest heavy on our mental digestion. They have been formulated without reference to the all-important fact that the geographical relations of man, like his social and political organization, are subject to the law of development, just as the embryo state found in the primitive Saxon tribe has passed through many phases in attaining the political character of the present British Empire. So every stage in this maturing growth has been accompanied or even preceded by a steady evolution of the geographic relations of the English people, owing to the evolution of geographic relations. The physical environment favorable to one stage of development may be adverse to another and vice versa. For instance, a small, isolated and protected habitat, like that of Egypt, Phoenicia, Crete and Greece, encourages the birth and precocious growth of civilization, but later it may cramp progress, and lend the stamp of arrested development to a people who were once the model for all their little world, open and windswept Russia, lacking these small, warm nurseries where nature could cuddle her children, has bred upon its boundless plains a massive, and tutored, homogeneous folk, fed upon the crumbs of culture that had fallen from the richer tables of Europe, but that item of area is a variable quantity in the equation, it changes its character at a higher stage of cultural development, consequently, when the Muscovite people, instructed by the example of Western Europe, shall have grown up intellectually, 
economically and politically to their big territory. Its area will become a great national asset. Russia will come into its own, heir to a long-withheld inheritance. Many of its previous geographic disadvantages will vanish, like the diseases of childhood, while its massive size will dwarf many previous advantages of its European neighbors. This evolution of geographic relations applies not only to the local environment, but also to the wider world relations of a people. Greeks and Syrians, English and Japanese, take a different rank among the nations of the earth today from that held by their ancestors 2.000 years ago, simply because the world relations of civilized peoples have been steadily expanding since those far back days of Tyrian and Athenian supremacy. The period of maritime discoveries in the 15th and 16th centuries shifted the foci of the world relations of European states from enclosed seas to the rim of the Atlantic. Venice and Genoa gave way to Cadiz and Lagos, just as 16 centuries before Corinth and Athens had yielded their ascendancy to Rome and Ostia. The keen but circumscribed trade of the Baltic, which gave wealth and historical preeminence to Lübeck and the other hands towns of northern Germany from the 12th to the 17th century lost its relative importance when the Atlantic became the maritime field of history. Maritime leadership passed westward from Lübeck and Stralsund to Amsterdam and Bristol. As the historical horizon widened, England, prior to this sudden dislocation, lay on the outskirts of civilized Europe, a terminal land, not a focus. The peripheral location which retarded her early development became a source of power when she accumulated sufficient density of population for colonizing enterprises and when maritime discovery opened a way to transoceanic lands. Meanwhile, local geographic advantages in the old basins remain the same, although they are dwarfed by the development of relatively greater advantages elsewhere. The broken coastline, limited area and favorable position of Greece make its people today a nation of seamen, and enable them to absorb by their considerable merchant fleet a great part of the trade of the eastern Mediterranean, just as they did in the days of Pericles but that youthful Aegean world which once constituted so large a part of the Oikumeni, has shrunk into a modest province, and its highways to a local paths. The coast cities of northern Germany still maintain a large commerce in the Baltic, but no L.